The Russian invasion of Ukraine echoes the German invasion of Europe 80 years ago. Both Putin and Hitler recite history to justify the war. When the Holocaust memorial was damaged in an airstrike, President Zelensky tweeted, What is the point of saying never again for 80 years if the world stays silent when a bomb drops on the same side of Babin Yar? At least five killed. History repeating. End quote. And so the question we pose today is, how should we think of history? Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review Redeeming Our Thinking About History, a God-centered approach by Vern S. Poitras. 256 pages published by Crossway in 2022. It's available for $18.99 in Amazon Kindle and, as of this recording, it's available for pre-order in Logos for $11.99. I am reviewing a review copy courtesy of Crossway. Crossway had no input on this review. Vern S. Poitras is a distinguished professor of New Testament Biblical Interpretation and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, where he has taught for 44 years. He has six, count that, six academic qualifications, thereby establishing that he is a very smart man. His best friend is John Frame, or at least I think John Frame is his best friend because they both share a blog, frame-poitras.org. And you only share a blog with your bestie, right? I mentioned John Frame here because if you are a fan of John Frame, then you might like this book, which builds on Frame's perspectives. Poitras is a prolific writer. Relevant to today's review is a series that began 16 years ago. In 2006, he wrote Redeeming Science. In 2011, Redeeming Sociology. In 2014, Redeeming Philosophy. In 2015, Redeeming Mathematics. And in 2022, this year, it's Redeeming History. Or rather, it should be Redeeming History. Instead, the title is Redeeming Our Thinking About History. I'm not sure why he broke the pattern in uh, the titles of the books, but uh, it's Redeeming Our Thinking About History. So I love history. I hope you do as well. I want or love the idea of redeeming my thoughts about it. So let us jump into the book with high expectations. The book is divided into five main parts. Number one, what we need in order to think about history. Number two, history in the Bible. Part three, understanding God's purposes in history. And this part is the main thesis of the book. Part four, what does history writing look like? Part five, alternative versions of how to think about history. Now, these are the five parts. There are 26 chapters, over 256 pages. Some chapters are really short. The shortest chapter is three pages. Okay, so it's very short. And now I will highlight one or two points from each part okay, for this review. In part one, Poitras argues that history consists of 
three aspects, events, people, and meaning. And when I first read this, I pushed back a bit because I thought that, you know, why do you need people for there to be history? The first five days of Genesis did not have people. And by, by defining history in this way, you seem to exclude the study of the cosmos, okay? Because there's nobody, no person, human being yet. But anyway, I let it pass. Um, he puts this very early in the book. And also, he, he, it's the way he explains it, how Poitras links people and history. Okay? He says, for example, that the historian is a person. And we can understand all these things because there's somebody explaining it to us. Okay? So that's a person. And he also says that for history to have meaning, and here's the main point, for history to have meaning, you must have people. Fine, let's move on. Now, because all history have these three aspects, events, people, and meaning, he then pushes on and says that these three aspects depend on each other. So you can't have one without the other two. And next he says that all three of these aspects have God as their source. God is the foundation. Number one, God controls all events within history. Number two, God controls all humans in history. And a side note over here. If you have not come to terms that God is in control over everything, including people, then Poitras makes a concise case in the book to show you that it's true. And then you have number three, which is that the, the third aspect, meaning. You know the cliche, there is a reason for everything. Well, ultimately, it is God who gives a reason or the meaning for history, all of history, every part of history. And as images of God, we try to puzzle it out. And Poitras's central thesis of this book is historians should articulate God's purpose in history. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Having described these three aspects, the mutual dependencies and the divine foundation, there are useful discussions in this part one about the ethical, spiritual components of history and the need to understand people and historical causes. However, I think there is an unnecessary distraction amidst all this very good discussion. Poitras unnecessarily links the three aspects events, people, and meaning, with the triune God. You have three aspects in history. You have three persons in the Trinity. So they match. Now, I won't say that Poitras draws a hard and strong connection on, on this match, but it does feel forced and thus distracting. I mean, if you're a guy who managed to think of a fourth or fifth aspect to history, you can't propose it here because you will break the Trinity relationship. It would be heresy. Okay, I'm just make, exaggerating the point. But then when you link it too strongly, I mean, it, is, is it really necessary? Okay, so that's the question. Anyways, in part two, after telling us what we need in order to analyze history, all the nice things that uh, he brought up, useful, good stuff, he then shows us the history in the Bible. This wonderful book's unity, diversity, and uniqueness. And he is saying here that we can learn how to think about history by looking at how God thinks about history. He writes, I quote, God is interested in each person. 
He is interested in history. It is legitimate for us to be interested too. The Bible also indicates that God is concerned about many other subjects. He gives us commands. He tells us about himself. He shows us the way of salvation. So we should not forget that a focus on events and their meanings, the historical aspect, is part of a larger whole in God's purposes. End quote. <clears throat> in part three, understanding God's purpose in history, um, this part is better in posing and framing the question than it is at answering it. Let me ask you, is it possible for us to understand God's purpose in history outside of the Bible? For example, would you attempt to explain God's purpose for World War I or World War II? And notice the difference here, because we can explain God's purpose for Assyria to invade Samaria. We can explain God's purpose for Babylon to destroy Jerusalem. The question is, can we explain God's purpose for history outside of the Bible? And as I read Poitras's book and reflect on the news flying around, can we, dare we, explain God's purpose for Russia to invade Ukraine? Some dare. The retired evangelist Pat Robertson uh, showed up and quoted Ezekiel 38 and said, I quote, Putin is being driven to move against Israel because God says, I'm going to put hooks in your jaws, end quote. And he then goes through the eschatology about Judgment Day, about uh, the, the nation of Israel and all, and where Gog, Magog, and all this fit in. So leave aside your response whether you agree or disagree with Robertson's interpretation of Ezekiel or the end times. Put that aside, okay? Just put that aside. The question is, are we sufficiently informed to know the divine purposes in history, whether it's yesterday's news or whether it's events from a thousand years ago? Okay. So Poitras shows us in this, in this uh, part three, okay, in the chapters inside here, shows us that we already claim to know divine purpose. Okay? You and I, we both claim that we know God's purposes in our lives. When we give thanks to God for answered prayers, we say it was God's purpose to bless us. That is why we thank Him, isn't it? When we tell people how we were saved by Jesus, we say it was God's purpose to save us, isn't it? So in these little bits of church history or personal history, we readily recognize the purposes of God. Therefore, what we have here is that the way the individual pieced together his or her life and to thank God and to testify of God's goodness, God's purposes, is analogous to what the historian does, what the historian does to piece together uh, small and great events and say that these are the purposes of God in these historical events. Okay? So what we do with our little lives, the historian does for great lives. Okay? So that is the, the exciting part about can we actually do that? 
And in these chapters, even as Poitras asked the historian to be more bold, be bold in describing the divine purpose, he is also sounding caution. His favorite cautionary verse is Job's friends who overreached. They claimed to know more of God's purposes and they were proven fools at the end of the book. So in the same vein, Poitras warns on seeing God's purpose from our favorite causes. I quote here, We all like to think that God supports our causes, our desires. Too often, sinful and biased desires begin to claim our allegiance. We give allegiance to them instead of subordinating our desires to God's desires. My church, my political group, my theology, my family is supported by God, we reason. So it is easy to deceive ourselves and claim in a proud and self-satisfied way that all events favorable to our cause are expressions of God's purpose to favor our cause. When we fight a battle, we ask for God's favor in a war. As Abraham Lincoln famously said, the question is not whether uh, God is on our side, the question is on whether we are on God's side. All right. So how do we see things from God's perspective? And so there are many questions that he poses, which in part three, he did not answer to my satisfaction. So I turned the page and I looked towards part four, hoping that he will give a better answer to whether we can find, we can determine, okay, we can describe God's purpose in history outside the Bible. So in part four, which consists of three chapters, Poitras shows how the historian can interpret the hand of God in historical events. This is where he applies. Okay, all the things that he said beforehand, he applies it in part four. Tell us, show us how it is done. So the, the easy chapter is the first one in this part four, and it's on Rome. We have Christians against pagans, Christians against non-Christians. So over here, we have strong confidence to know God's will for Christians and God's will for those who persecute them and torture them and kill them. So we know what is God's will in these events. The next chapter is harder. It's about the Reformation. It's Christians against Christians. And it's not just about Protestants versus Catholics. You also have within the Protestants, you also have uh, warring factions or uh, differences of opinions. So how, how can we describe God's purposes in those events? Now, I think it's still doable, okay? And uh, in this case, uh, Poitras shows us how it can be done. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to events within the church history, it is easier to guess or estimate God's purposes. Honestly, we do it all the time. When we, for example, when we read biographies, we see that God has prepared Corey Ten Boom, Jim Elliot, Martin Lloyd-Jones, or R.C. Sproul for a purpose. And we can trace that purpose through the joys and trials, the ups and downs of these people's lives. So it is easier, not, I didn't say easy, I said it is, it is easier to see God's purpose when writing history about Christians. But what about for 
non-Christian history, history outside the Bible, outside the church, outside the faith, how do we interpret that? That's the, that's the question I'm, I'm, I'm burning for an answer. And that's uh, why when I opened the book, okay, I saw that there was this chapter which was titled Histories of Other Civilizations, which is the chapter that we're looking at now. And so I was, when I first opened the book, okay, before I even read, read a single word, I saw this chapter and I was looking forward to it and I finally arrived here and I'm hoping that he'll explain to me how can we describe God's purposes about history of other civilizations. And Poitras knows what the question is. He writes, I quote, What about the history of Greece before the coming of Christ? What about the history of the Incan Empire before the coming of Europeans? What about the history of the Chinese Empire before the time of modern missions? Even after the gospel begins to penetrate a particular culture, there are still many events that do not have a clear, direct relation to the increased spread of the gospel. There are power struggles, wars, famines, and technological advances. How do we understand such events in the light of the gospel and the manifestation of God's glory in salvation in Christ? End quote. So Poitras is very clear on what the question is. And I want to remind you, uh, listener, that if we can answer this question, okay, these questions that he himself posed, we can also answer the questions I posed earlier. I asked, how are Christians to think about God's purposes in World War I, in World War II, and in Ukraine today? And to my great disappointment, this chapter is only three pages long. His answer is hinted in the subheading for this chapter, the principle of limited knowledge. We just don't know enough. There are some interesting things that he describes, all right? But it's only three pages, and he advises caution, being careful not to overreach like Job's friends. So we can commend him for his care, for his caution, for not speculating on the mysteries of God. But you see, the way the whole book is set up, arguing boldly that we can, that the historian should describe God's purposes in history, or God's purpose singular in history, I expected a stronger chapter to clinch the case. So that is my disappointment showing up as I read this book. The final part, part five, again, I'm hoping for some a good answer. Uh, it, I, I don't get it. <laughs> uh, part five is uh, subtitled, Competing Ways of Doing History Among Christians. And in these five chapters, Poitras is mainly interacting with uh, Joy D. Green's book, Christian Historiography, uh, Five Rival Versions. It's an obvious change of pace because um, in earlier chapters, in earlier parts, Poitras doesn't engage so vigorously with anyone uh, as he does in this uh, final part, part five. However, it is clear from this part and also from the whole book that uh, Poitras is putting forward one particular way of thinking about history. And that is, uh, he describes it as, uh, he coins the term providentialism. I quote, We know that God controls events because he tells us that he does. 
but what are his purposes in bringing events to pass? That is a more difficult question. In a narrower sense, a providential view of history describes God's purposes in events. It does not merely say that God did something, but why he did it. Let us call this kind of approach providentialism. End quote. So throughout this book, it is clear that what Vern Poitras means by redeeming our thinking about history is not just seeing people as sinners and a holy God as judge and maker of all creation. But he is saying redeeming to mean we should see God's purposes in history. And when it comes to Christian events, church history, Christian testimony, to me, that is a given. It's just describing that water is wet. I already see God's purpose in those events. So it's easy to see God's divine purposes there, but please tell me how to describe God's purposes in non-Christian events. That's the one, the thing that I'm calling out for. And the way he frames the question is tantalizing, you want more. The way he answers the question is so disappointing. Okay, This is the weakness of the book. It's like going to a restaurant, the waiter is describing this menu item, it's a mouth-watering, taste extravaganza, then he tells you it's all in the chef's mind. No one has ever tasted this dish before. So... It's really disappointing in that sense. The lack of examples, or rather, even answers to his own question of how to think about Greek Incan or Chinese history is a letdown. And what makes it worse, okay, what makes it worse is I think we can, I think he could do it actually. We can, for example, trace Greek philosophy, military, economic, or political thought to Christianity's history because the two spheres clearly overlap. Yes, okay, Greek philosophy and Christian philosophy uh, uh, overlap. But I argue that if you are a student of Incan or Chinese history, you can also see how the spheres overlap, the Christian and the Chinese, the Christian and the Incan. And as soon as you can link, get that overlap of that history to Christian history, we can begin just merely begin to estimate God's purpose. All right. So I think that we can. And the historian has as much to contribute here because I don't know that much about Chinese history. But once you know about Christianity, about God's uh, uh, salvation, uh, historical redemption, God's promises, and then you link it to what we know of Chinese history, I think that we can actually um, have an example of where God's purposes can be seen. So the frustration is Poitras seems content to tell us such history writing exists, that such history writing should flourish, but he doesn't show examples of it. Another criticism I have for this book is it works hard to connect the ideas to Poitras and Frame's previous work, when it really should work harder to connect to the works of other historians. Now, in the bibliography, there are 16 references to Poitras and 6 references to Frame, their books and their writings. And their ideas were discussed in the book, in this book. However, uh, even though there were references in the bibliography, which 
judging from the titles, they're talking about history, about the Christian way of looking at, at past events and so on. So those are very good titles. These titles should have been brought in as part of the discussion. The unfortunate thing is that the only writing that Poitras thoroughly engages with is Green's Christian historiography and citing it in the last five chapters. Every chapter will actually talk about Green's book. And I think that he's barking up the wrong tree. Um, the main interaction between Green, I think, could have been, the time spent there could have been better spent on engaging with other historians in their thoughts about Christian, Christian uh, how Christians should think about history. So I think this is a missed opportunity in this book as well. So, uh, providentialism, the idea of writing history with God's purposes in mind, was, as Poitras describes it, fairly common in the past, but it has become controversial. So, if it was fairly common in the past, okay, this is his words, not mine. If it is fairly common in the past, then why don't you give us some examples of it? Or talk about any historians that are doing it now among all that bibliography, all those books that we have in the, in the bibliography. Can we not find a contemporary historian that is doing it? Can we not find examples of past historians who did a good job of it? We want to know these good examples of history writing because we don't want to be like Job's friends. We don't want to overreach and, and pretend to see God's purposes when it's, it's not true. We want to see what happened and to see how it is done rightly. Unless the problem is it cannot be done rightly. And if that is so, because he didn't give any examples, you see. So I mean, is it a problem that nobody has done it correctly? Then maybe providentialism, the main thesis of his book, is just nice in theory, but impossible in practice. So I have to say here, okay, in conclusion, uh, I'm wrapping up. This is the only book by Vern Poitras that I've ever read. But it makes me wonder about the other redeeming books in the series. Does he talk more about his um, framework, about his analytical tool that he has? Him and uh, frame, uh, framework frame, huh? John Frame's uh, analytical tool. Does he talk about these things more rather than the, the domain, the, 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 the field itself? I mean, it's okay for a guy to apply this uh, analytical tool that he has developed and apply it into philosophy, science, mathematics, or so sociology, and history. I think it's good. There's nothing wrong with that. It's good. We can develop and learn new ways of seeing things. But I think you should be able to show us um, how it works with the current field or, or even show us how someone has used your tool and has developed new thoughts or contributions from it. I haven't read any of the other books, but if this book um, is any indication, then um, it's just, again, a, 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 an area of weakness that could have, I, ho I, hope, I hope, have been easily um, overcome. Poitras also makes the audacious claim that this is a God-centered approach. And I think that's an oversell. When you say it's God-centered, I expected a lot more. If anything, this book should be titled A Providence-Centered Approach or Providentialism. Something along those lines. It would be less audacious 
and more accurate to the thesis of the book. Now, I've said so many uh, bad things or weakness about the book, criticisms, but is there anything good? Is there anything to redeem from this book? Has this book redeemed my thinking on history? And uh, yes, when I was watching the documentary, Downfall, The Case Against Boeing. So I was watching this documentary and then I was reading this book. Um, this, this book came to mind and Poitras was right. He, is saying, he did say in the book that everyone, Christians, non-Christians, inject a moral view in our history. So there's one chapter that talks about that. And we need to find a villain in the story. And that was true for this documentary, The Downfall. There, there was a villain. So circular history is not absent of morality. Okay? It's just absent religious morality. So when, when Poitras points this out, Again, we look at the world, we look at the, the shows that we watch, the books that we read, the songs that we listen to, the news that we, that we, that we get, and then we can see, all right? We can see things from a Christian perspective. For example, when I read on the five views of how to think about history, I was thinking about bullies and saints, an honest look of the good and evil of Christian history by John Dixon. That book ticked all the boxes. So I was, again, engaged trying to uh, evaluate whether these five views, are they contradicting or can they actually come together and complement each other? And in John Dixon's book, I believe it complemented each uh, view. Okay? All, all five views were represented. So despite my criticisms, um, Poitras's book has challenged my thinking on history. Also, the writing is accessible. The six um, academic qualifications um, did not make it so dull or dry or so in, uh, difficult to read. Not at all. He writes in a very easygoing style and anybody should be able to pick up this book and read it. And uh, he clearly once, he clearly did set out to put his thoughts on biblical foundations. Okay, so there are numerous biblical quotes and he always turns, turns, turns back to the Bible. Again, at the risk of uh, repeating myself, <laughs> I just wished that he had fully answered the question that he himself posed. How can we describe God's purposes in history, specifically non-biblical and non-Christian history? I really wish he answered that question. This is a Reading and Reader's Review of Redeeming Our Thinking About History, a God-centered approach by Vern S. Poitras available in Amazon Kindle for $18.99. And as of this recording, it's available as pre-order from Logos.com for $11.99. I got a review copy of this book courtesy of the publisher Crossway, but again, they had no input on this review. God determines events, people, and meaning. Listening to this podcast is an event that connects you and I together. But what is the meaning or the purpose of this event? There must be meaning because we don't believe in coincidences, right? We believe in God's providence. So to apply what we have learned in today's podcast, perhaps we can divine God's purpose here. Perhaps, and I want to be careful here, I don't want to overreach. Perhaps the purpose of listening to this podcast and potentially subscribing to this podcast is for me to introduce to you books that will refresh and nourish your soul. 
Always remember that God's purposes are great and wonderful. And I think this book reminds us to always meditate and reflect on God's purposes in history and in our lives. May you continue to walk in God's will. Thank you for listening.